Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. The final meeting of the year for the Farnham U3A World History Group comprises of four short talks from any period in history. The third of our short talks is called The Chinese Art of Descent and is given by Alan Freeland. At the beginning of this year, I was absent from many of these sessions because I booked myself on one module of a University of London MA in art history. And the module I chose was Chinese art, the history of Chinese arts. This was January through to March. And uh, there was an exam at the end, and I now can empathise much more with your children and grandchildren who are going through exams. It was quite a stressful process. So what I thought I'd do today is just share with you one insight that I got from that course. And while the course was on, I don't know if any of you went, the British Museum had an exhibition on something like the art of descent that was curated by Ian Hislop. And so my, my theme today is how can you have history in an environment where dissent is not allowed. First of all, I will talk about Hung Won Yu's owl painting of 1973, which was used in the Ian Hislop exhibition. But my agenda is really going to be these three topics, the scholar official, the cost of dissent, metaphors and homophones, and I'll finish off with a little quiz, a nice easy quiz, which you have a go at. And to understand the history of dissent in, in China, it's important to understand these scholar officials. So if you look at the in UK, in the 2010 Parliament, in the Conservative Party MPs, over 30% of those MPs came from Oxford or Cambridge University backgrounds. In China, throughout its history, 100% of all civil service people had to pass the civil service exam. So it was much more institutionalized there than we would have it here. So we'll talk about that because they're very influential to the culture of China. This third topic, metaphors and homophones. So there's lots of techniques that artists have used to demonstrate dissent. I'm going to pick on two of them. Uh, one is metaphors, and the other one is, is puns or homophones. Now, the Chinese language is a phonetic language, so sound is very important to meaning, uh, much more so than in our language. Well, of course, we've got lots of puns. Hong Wan Yu, so he was a, an artist during Mao Zedong's era, and, of course, Mao Zedong was against all artists. He was famous for wildlife paintings and in particular owls. He liked painting owls. He painted this picture of an owl with one eye shut, which caused a lot of offence. And the phrase was, this demonstrates an animosity towards the proletarian cultural revolution and the socialist system. So apparently the portrayal of an owl with one eye shut was seen as a symbol of government officials turning a blind eye to injustices. And unfortunately, it landed Hung Won Yu in, in a labor camp for three and a half years. Subsequent to coming out of the labor camp, he has not made it clear whether or not that painting was deliberately criticism of the government. And this is very much the beauty and the challenge of assessing dissent in a totalitarian regime. You know, people aren't open about their intent. So it's very difficult to tell if it is happening, which is part of the reason why I do it. So here is a picture, 15th century Ming Dynasty, an elegant gathering of scholar officials. So these scholar officials, each year there would be civil service examinations. The top officials would then go and work directly for the emperor. Those who got lower marks would have lower positions in, in the society. 
And these scholar officials, so they have a bureaucratic role, but many of them as a pastime would take up painting or calligraphy or poetry. And some of them actually became much more famous for their artistic talents than for their public service. But importantly, these characters set the cultural agenda for the society they lived in. So the first character I want to talk about was Sima Qian. So he was a scholar official, Han Dynasty, so almost 2,000 years ago. And he is considered the father of Chinese historiography. His, his book, The Records of the Grand Historian, A General History of China, which covered the previous 2,000 years. So this is the history of China from 2,000 years before Common Era up to Common Era. And his work was very influential, not just in China, but throughout the whole of Southeast Asia. In those days, for permanent records, his book was written on these bamboo slips. And just to give you an idea, when complete, there was 50 kilograms worth of bamboo strips. So that's about how much we weigh. So this was a, a hefty tome. It had taken a while to read through. But the work was nearly lost to the world due to a disagreement in the year 99 before Common Era. The Chinese had just lost a series of battles against the Mongol people. This was a continuing theme in Chinese history. And the two generals that had led the campaign were Li Ling and Li Guangli. Now, Li Guangli was the emperor's son-in-law. And so the emperor blamed Li Ling for the military failure. Now, Sima Quan didn't know Li Ling, but he had to write the history of the time, and he was keen that the history should be accurate. And from his investigations, it appeared pretty obvious that it was the emperor's son-in-law that was most culpable for the failure of the military expeditions. So he spoke up. He said to the emperor, you know, I think you're being a bit harsh on Li Ling. I think he was quite a good general. The emperor didn't like this show of dissent, so Sima Kwan got thrown into jail. He spent three years in jail, and then he was released. Now, he's a scholar official. They're responsible for the cultural norms of society. Now, the cultural norms are, if you're a scholar official and you've been disgraced, so you've been thrown into prison, for example, you're expected to commit suicide when you come out. That's, that's just how it is. So he was in a bit of a fix. He was about 80, 90% way through his history. Yeah, you know, 50 kilograms worth of history. You'd only got 48 kilograms written. And uh, he really did want to finish his history. So he looked for a way out. There was an alternative to, to committing suicide, and that was castration. So he, he opted for castration, and then he was able to live long enough so this history has now been saved to the world. So that's a, a very small illustration of dissent, but quite a hurtful one. The next one, the horse is a metaphor. So Gongkai. So he lived during the dying days of the Song Dynasty, and again, in Chinese culture, civil servants, and this may or may not be a good idea, civil servants were not allowed to serve more than one dynasty. So when the Song dynasty came to an end and the Yuan dynasty took over, he lost his job. Yeah, he had to basically stand down. So he had no salary, and he effectively became a jobbing painter. He made his living by giving away paintings and getting charity back from there for his friends. He very much led a pauper's life. There are only two of his paintings that survive. It's called Emaciated Horse, otherwise known as the Bones of a Noble Steed. And it is, was very much seen as criticism of the new regime. And I'll explain why. So it's done in pen and ink on paper. The bones of the horse are very clearly visible. 
there's so little weight to the mane and the tail that even the gentlest of breeze is blowing them aside. And the head hangs down, perhaps with hunger, but perhaps also with shame. And Gonkai, significantly, if you count the ribs, there are 15 ribs there, and 15 ribs are indicative of the heavenly horses. These were the horses that the Chinese wanted from Central Asia that were powerful and big and that would help them win, win the wars and would also take, you, take the emperor to heaven. So these are pretty powerful horses. The standard horse, apparently, I don't know if this is true, only has 10 ribs. So for Gonkai, it was important that he showed you the 15 ribs so that you would know that this is actually a noble steed, a heavenly horse. And horses have, since the first Tang emperor, symbolized the scholar official. So given Gonkai was a scholar official and he was in this impoverished state, this is autobiographical. This is him saying, this is how us scholar officials have now been treated. And in a well-governed Confucian society, the emperor was responsible not just for recruitment of scholar officials, but for their welfare. So this is him saying, you're not treating scholar officials well. In the Western world, paintings are typically hung up on a wall. That, that's how we see them. Now, in, in, in Chinese society, paintings can take a number of formats, hanging scrolls, which we'll look at, or this is a hand scroll. So this would be, this is about two foot by one foot, something like that. So as a hand scroll, it's a much more personal thing. This wouldn't have been for public consumption. He would have passed this round to his friends, and you know, they would have used it to share commentary about today's society. So he didn't get into trouble from producing this. Now these scholar officials, to prevent corruption, they were typically, once they've been appointed, pointed to a place far away from where their family and friends were, so they couldn't influence them. And apparently they seemed to spend an awful lot of time contemplating retirement, which given that it's on their first appointment was many years off in many cases. So Wang Hu here has painted a, a landscape, and here you've got houses, nice cottages by rivers, amongst green mountains, and a very idyllic scene. So he would have had this hanging up, and as he's doing his bureaucratic job, he'd be looking at this picture, thinking of the day that he was going to retire to this idyllic place. This particular one was recently sold at Sotheby's for just £10,000. So it's all very affordable. Wang Mang. So he was living uh, at the time of the end of the Yuan dynasty, and this is his picture of this idyllic mountain and stream scene. Just look at the size of this. This is almost four foot tall. So this is why it looks quite small on screen, because the, the actual hanging scroll is four foot high. So it's a huge, momentous picture. And it's barely visible as a landscape. You know, you've got contorted, overbearing shapes, and at first glance, you really can't see what it's about at all. But it's supposed to represent the same areas where his grandfather, another scholar official, had built their retirement home. And that would have looked very much like the previous picture. But from Wang Meng's viewpoint, he was living at the end of the dynasty. There was huge amounts of rebellions. Lots of different factions were, were forming to try and usurp the current government. And if I just expand one little section of that, so in, in white on the right, I've just expanded one, you can just about see there is one figure. So this is a very desolate scene. It's probably less showing dissent and more dislocation from society. He's a scholar official, he's out of a job, and worse, he's got nowhere to retire to. So he's, he's pretty disgruntled. And the reason why the world is in this sorry state is all these political factions are arguing amongst themselves. They're not looking after the everyday people. 
So there's, there's no parallels at all here with today. So homophones. Now, I don't speak Chinese, and I'm going to have to say a couple of words in Chinese, so excuse me if I don't get the pronunciation absolutely right. We're coming quite up to date now. In this century, Hu Jiantao, who was General Secretary of the Communist Party, one of his big themes was harmony. We will live in a harmonious society. So people on bulletin boards, on social media, didn't always agree that they would live in a harmonious society, and they started posting criticism about this on the web. And soon people found their posts were being deleted. Being clever net citizens, they came up a workaround. So instead of talking about harmony, which is pronounced Hershia, they started talking about Hershia. Okay, now Hershia is an otherwise unremarkable river crab, hence these things here. So eventually, of course, the government works out that when people are talking about Hershia, river crabs, they're talking about dissent against this harmonious society they're supposed to be living in. So the government deleted that. So some of the more hardened dissenters then started using a metaphor of any shellfish. By this time, their posts are just totally incomprehensible. But that was very active today. And in fact, Ai Weiwei, most of us will know him, the most internationally famous Chinese dissenter, he produced this artwork of 3,000 painted ceramic porcelain river crabs crowded into a very tight space. And by the time he did this work, the term Hershur, uh, river crab, was being used by the Chinese web users as a, a term for meaning an oppressive government. Once the wordplay is explained, you, know, you can look at this sculpture and think of it as suggestive of claustrophobia, restriction, government control, all your freedoms being redacted. How did he become a dissenter? You know, he was a very successful artist. How did my Ivy Way become uh, a dissenter? Back in 2008, some of us will remember in Sichuan province, there was a huge earthquake. 69,000 people died. A huge number of those were children at school. And the government never acknowledged the number of children that were killed or the causes for that tragedy. And many of the parents were very upset about that and complained that they thought the cause was substandard buildings and corruptions. So Ai Weiwei, he started to investigate. He empowered these parents and he tried to document and he identified 9,000 school children that had perished as a result of these earthquakes. And they perished due to government failings and corruption. So he created this artwork called Remembering. The picture is composed of 9,000 children's backpacks all in these bright colours. He made a big statement, and the Chinese government, from that point on, he was basically a marked individual. He lives in Germany now. Tiananmen Square. This is the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. This was posted on the... Remember, by now, I mean, China has got something like 50,000 censors who block any dissenting voices on the internet. Uh, so somebody has posted this picture, and you've got 4th of June, 89 when it happened, an AK-47, we all know what an AK-47 is, right? The weapon of choice for governments, terrorists, and civilians, if you want to cause mayhem. There's a real person there, but you can't identify them. So, you know, you're a Chinese censor, you've got to spot that that is somebody talking about Tiananmen Square, which is absolutely verboten in China. And in fact, if you go onto the BBC website today, so 30 years later, there's, there's two very interesting articles there. So there are Stephen McDonnell, who's a, who's a BBC reporter, posted a picture of the crowds in Hong Kong. 
protesting against this. Now, there was no text. There's nothing that says these are the crowds in, in Hong Kong. But he posted it in China. The next day, his internet accounts in China were all frozen. A note came up saying, if you want to continue to use these tools, please re-register during the following process, which required a picture to be taken of him, his fingerprints to be, be recorded. So, so the Chinese government now have got... I mean, many people have said, why did you do that? And he said, well, I can't operate unless I share this biometric information with the government. So the, the Chinese government have now got that, that information. And, and Kate Aidy has got a nice little video story of her time. She was actually in Tiananmen Square when this happened. So I've tried to make it slightly amusing. It's clearly, you know, for the people involved, not at all pleasant. But there is plenty of dissent that goes on. You have to look quite hard. And it, it does make Chinese art quite difficult to read at some times, because unless you know what the backstory is, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. And, and maybe we, we need to do our part in trying to keep truth alive wherever we find it. Thank you. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this talk 